2009, December 4th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 46. This view of life, the course summary for Astronomy 141, and the last lecture for autumn quarter 2009. So today is different. Today you can put down your pencils and put your paper away. There aren't any notes because, yeah, you've heard it all before. Well, maybe not quite the same way. But today I'm going to try to summarize the course, Life in the Universe. It's, it's kind of hard to begin to summarize this. When we began this 10 weeks ago, actually 10 and a half weeks ago, um, I really wasn't sure how this was going to go or where it was going to go. I've never taught this course before. Um, uh, I, I know the material, and certainly it's a relatively new course, but, but I not actually sat down and organized it and taught it myself. Uh, the lectures have been kind of a little bit uh, just in time. I, I appreciate all those of you who've been showing up to class regularly. Um, the lectures themselves take about 40, 45 minutes to present. What you don't see behind the many hundreds of slides is that it's uh, usually somewhere between three and six hours of preparation for each lecture. Because a lot of them, some of the material I know I can loot and pillage from my old stuff. Other stuff I've had to learn new, and I've, I've learned a tremendous amount doing this, and I hope you've learned a great deal as well. So how do we even begin to summarize this class? So I thought, of wh where do I want to start? What's the, the idea that we're trying to get across? Astronomy 141 is about astrobiology. It's a combination of astronomy, physics, chemistry, biology, geology, all kinds of subjects suddenly mashing together. As I said at the beginning of the course, we, we live at a very unique time in human history when our knowledge of all of these areas, the various revolutions that have brought us forward to the base of knowledge we have in the 21st century, is permitting us to actually ask intelligent scientific questions and hopefully get intelligent answers out of some of the biggest questions we've ever asked as humanity. And one of those is really, are we alone? Are we the only thing in the universe? But this sort of insistence upon knowledge clouds something else which is behind these studies. And I, I call upon, of course, the, the iconic physicist of the 20th century, Albert Einstein. One of his most misquoted lines is from an interview in the Saturday Evening Post in 1929. The full quote is actually relevant. I am of enough of an artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. He's misquoted because people put the middle quote, imagination is more important on knowledge, on t-shirts and coffee cups and ball caps, and sort of seem to take it as license to mean that you don't need to know anything, you just have to make stuff up. This is actually not what Einstein meant. What he was saying was that our knowledge is simply what we know. But as I said at the beginning of the course, science is not what we know. It's how we as human beings have learned to confront what we do not know. And how we confront with what we do not know is we apply our imaginations. Certainly the first humans, the first recognizable humans, or even our ancestors, or common ancestors behind them, looked up at the night sky and saw stars, thousands of stars. When they saw them, they didn't just simply see these as points of light. They began to see patterns in the stars. They began to apply their imagination, and it became part of their world. They wondered what they were. Were they, in fact, like the distant campfires of distant encampments? Were they other people sitting up there? We certainly know the earliest signs of, of what we call now human consciousness and human thought is found in cave paintings that have managed to survive the, the vicissitudes of time. But in addition to simply recording the hunt and the animals and, and the things that they did over those times, there are a couple of curious artifacts that come to us from the Paleolithic era. 
Up on the right here is something called the Abri Blanchard bone. It's a, a, probably a bit of an antler or a, a, a big leg bone. I'm not sure which one it is. I always forget. But it's got some interesting carvings in it. This has been worked by human hands. There's a series of notches along the ridge. When you examine these carvings closely, a number of uh, paleontologists believe that what we are looking at is the first recording of the sequence of, of the, the uh, lunar phases. And in fact, the number of notches records a complete sequence of lunar months. So even as long ago as 26,000 years, there is a recognizable artifact of watching the sky, beginning to measure the sky, and beginning to reckon time by the things we see in the sky. Applying our imagination not simply to the contents of the world to say what they are, but wonder what they are and begin to understand them and begin to make them part of our consciousness. As we advanced in our civilizations, as we began to grow up and leave written records and tombs and other, other artifacts for the future, we began to take those pictures of the stars and began to populate them. Uh, first, it was the patterning of the constellations. We put our gods, our goddesses, demons and angels and various other creatures in the sky. Reflections of ourselves in the heavens that we see down here on the earth. But again, the heavens seemed to fire our imaginations. We wanted to know what they were. What are the stars? And so by many people, by the time of the, the middle of the Renaissance, began to actually change our view of the world. The common sense view of the world is that we are sitting at the center of the universe and this universe turns above us. But people began to realize as the measurements got better, as they began to think about the way in which the pattern of motions in the sky behaved, men like Copernicus and Kepler realized that we are not the center of the universe. In fact, we are but one planet circling one star and all the motions in the heavens can be understood as seeing the moving worlds from ourselves standing upon a yet a moving planet. This worked a tremendous uh, revolution in thought. It began to open up the people's minds to the idea that we lived in a much larger universe than is simply encompassed by the world. If our knowledge encircles the world, involves what we know, our imagination began to expand with this exercise of imagining a world quite unlike what our senses told us we lived in, but in fact turned out to be true because we had predictive power. We could see that it was a correct description. Our knowledge began to fill in behind the application of our imagination to the heavens. We cannot go outside the earth and look down upon the solar system, but we can imagine it and we can make that part of our reality. Our reality was extended 400 years ago this year. In fact, within these few months, between November of 1609 and January of 1610, an Italian named Galileo Galilei put together the first astronomical telescope and began to record the observations he made of the moon, of the motions of the planet Jupiter, and discovering the four moons of Jupiter, later called the Galilean satellites. He saw the Milky Way. It was composed of vast numbers of stars. He found spots on the sun. He saw the phases of Venus. The universe now became a real physical place that you could actually learn something about and you could begin to extend to human senses through the simple agency of a telescope. For 400 years, we have continued this extension of the human senses in various ways through greater and greater advancements in telescopes, robotic space probes, and others. We began to see that even here from the basis of the Earth, we could begin to explore the universe. All of these ideas were brought together. Sometimes the achievement is achievements of discovery, like Galileo's discoveries of, of the true nature of the moon and the discovery of the, of the moons of Jupiter. But sometimes the act is one of synthesis. And if Newton can be said to have said to himself to have stood on the shoulders of giants, 
It was because what Newton accomplished was to take all of the different ideas that were brought together by people like Copernicus and Kepler and Tycho and Galileo and show that all these phenomena could be unified under a simple set of mathematically expressible physical laws that had predictive power to actually give us new knowledge. They became, in a sense, extensions of our imagination, ways of applying our knowledge and creating new knowledge by looking at the world. And so the Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica stands as one of the greatest books in human history because it really opened up the modern age of science. If you want to mark the old age of the Renaissance to the beginning of modern science, there are lots of places, but the publication of the Principia is that. Because when I take, as as an undergraduate at Caltech, took a basic physics course as a freshman, the basic physics that I learned was, with small modifications, the physics described by Newton in the Principia more than 300 years before. It was that revolutionary. It simply changed our way of looking at the world. Our imagination was applied to other areas. People not only began to look at the physical world outward, but began to ask about the world within, to ask, what is matter made of? What, what is the stuff of compounds? People for years had thought of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Perhaps they considered Aristotle's fifth essence, the quintessence. And certainly the alchemists sought to transform one compound into another. The people using this idea that the universe was understandable in terms of physical laws and describable to try to understand the nature of matter. And so here we have atoms, too small for the human eye to see under any circumstance. We've only just taken pictures of atoms with modern technology in the last decade or so. And yet Dalton, in the middle of the 19th century, in in a brilliant leap of imagination, resurrected the atomic theory of the ancient Greeks and modified it to actually give a correct description of chemical elements. It is a different picture. I mean, these, these pictures here, of course, do not, are not what atoms look like, but they are our imaginings of things that are too small for us to see, taking their physical properties and making them understandable to us, and working this revolution in chemistry that let us understand the nature of matter. The nature of matter was, again, becomes part of the physical world, becomes understandable, becomes predictable. We can apply physical principles and predict outcomes and understand why things work, not simply be content to see what they are. It takes a great leap of imagination for geologists to have looked at the earth with no knowledge of the history of the earth as we possess today, with no knowledge of the forces that are tectonic forces that are at work within the earth, and yet to see in a road cut where you just see different strata, oh, there's some clay on the top, there's some vertical rocks on the, on the bottom here in the Jedburgh, uh, near Jedburgh, Scotland, in this road cut, and realize that what you were seeing, you could imagine the history of the earth. You could see layers of sedimentation torn up and upended and actually begin to get the idea of uplift and repair. Begin to piece together in our imaginations the processes that built our Earth, the processes that continue to act upon our Earth. We cannot watch them. We cannot reconstruct them by watching a movie from afar. We have to reconstruct these ideas in our imagination and use that imagination to build our knowledge of the Earth. And by doing so, we reached a point in our geologic knowledge where we learned how to look at the Earth, how to read the stories and stones. So we could find places like the Archean Shield here in Canada that are literally the bones of the earth. These are the oldest rocks on the planet. And here in Australia, and begin from these to go back as far as we can in geologic time and reconstruct the history of our planet. We can now find zircon crystals more than 4.3 billion years old, trapping within them uranium and the lead isotopes that are daughter products of that decay. But by understanding the nature of atoms and the nature of radioactive decay, I can tell you that those zircons are 4.3 billion years old and were not created yesterday. Because I can understand the world in terms of physical processes that are predictable and repeatable and can apply those to 
learning more about the world. I can look for and know how to recognize the oldest rocks in the world up in the Archean Shield. And I can begin to realize that even though the Earth is vastly older than human history, we can piece together its deep antiquity. We know the Earth today is about 4.6 billion years old, and it has a history, a history that can be read by, if you will, putting together our knowledge of geology and then imagining how to, put, how to understand and interpret those to read the stories in stone and read off the history of the Earth. The same is true if we look not into the earth, but we looked into ourselves and we looked into the life around us. Perhaps nothing is more mysterious to us than the nature of life, of living things that are reproduced, that live, born, live, and die. And yet people did, in fact, take leaps of the imagination. Gregor Mendel, patiently breeding peas and controlling their breeding and beginning to slowly but surely tease out the rules of heredity that underlied them. It was the imagination of people like Morgan who could take care of fruit flies and tease out the fact that Heredity was carried by genetic factors within those animals and begin to see that the basis of that genetic heredity was contained in the chromosomes of the cells, the chromosomes discovered by Fleming and his use of the, of the uh, microscope. And finally, it was the imagination of people like Watson and Crick who could look at patternings of X-ray crystallography on these chemical compounds they were able to distill out of the chromosomes and actually piece together the three-dimensional structure of DNA to see, in fact, to be able to open the book of life and be able to tell us what the letters are that it is written in and begin to read its story and read its language. And this is a powerful insight into the nature of life, but it requires imagination. We've never seen a DNA molecule except in the outset, but it can take an act of human imagination to piece those ideas together and bring us to an understanding of the nature of life itself. Once again, in the area of biology, there are also those who have made advances not by single discoveries, but by synthesis, by bringing together many lines of evidence and many ideas, and coming up with a central formative idea that in the aftermath you think, how obvious, why didn't we think of this before? And in the area of life, the Newton of life can really be said to be this year's birthday boy, Charles Darwin, born 200 years ago to, in this, this year in 1809. It was Darwin who, on his voyage of the HMS Beagle around the world as the ship's naturalist, who began to make observations of the world. At the time of Darwin, people began to recognize that there was a deep relatedness among different kinds of animals. Different species, different creatures, all looked very similar. But there was a fossil record in which there were creatures that do not appear on the Earth. And there are a complete absence of modern-day creatures in that fossil record. People began to see that there were connections among the ideas of heredity, which were not understood. The laws of Mendel were not known to, to Charles Darwin. And after many years of contemplating the results of the voyage of, of the HMS Beagle and his own studies in natural science, he wrote one of the greatest syntheses of modern times on the origin of species by means of natural selection, which was published 150 years ago last month in London in 1859. The origin of, on the origin of species is, as I've said before, perhaps one of the most understood and most important books in all of human history because it describes the means by which life works. It works at many levels. We think of always, in terms of Darwin, we always talk about Darwin and his finches. These are the Galapagos finches. He found all the deep relationships among them by their appearances and described how the different lineages could have arisen through this process of natural selection. But if all we had was the deep, was the open superficial similarities and the apparent connections between these living creatures, if that was all there was to evolution, we wouldn't pay attention to it. 
But as we've dug deeper through the end of the 19th century, through the 20th, and now into the 21st century, into the nature of evolution, evolution is no mere theory. It is no mere guess. It is the fundamental foundation of all of biology and biochemistry. All of the phenomena of biology and biochemistry are simply not understandable if not in the context of evolution via natural selection. You simply could not make sense of any of it. And the reason is because evolution doesn't occur at the superficial level, it occurs at the deep molecular level. It shows deep within all life on this planet there is a deep interconnectedness that goes beyond simple surface appearances. It goes right down to the bones, it goes right down to the molecules. These are the 22 amino acids of life. They are the only 22 amino acids that are found through all forms of life on this planet, from the smallest bacterium to the largest elephant to all of us in this room. Of these 22, 21 are left-handed molecules. There is not a single right-handed amino acid in this entire group, even though right-handed amino acids occur naturally. Within nature, they do not occur within the processes of life. There is only one amino acid which doesn't have left-handed terms, glycine. Every single form of life uses only these building blocks on the planet. This is powerful evidence that all life is deeply interconnected at the molecular level. We did not arise separately or randomly. We all come from a deep common ancestor. That connectivity goes very deep. It even deepens down into the language of life itself, in the DNA, in the four base, in the four base pairs that make up the language, the letters, the words of life, in the, coded in our DNA. What tells a particular organism to become a bacterium or a human or an elephant is coded in only four sequences of letters, sometimes many millions of pairs long. Every single form of life on this planet uses the same letters, uses the same language. It tells the cells how to build, how to perform their function. Every cell on this planet uses adenosine triphosphate, one of many possible chemicals as a mediator of, chem of, of chemical metabolism within cells. There are many other possibilities, but we all use the same one. Why? The reason is actually very deep and very clear. And Darwin told us what the procedure was if he did not understand the mechanism and if we are still in the 21st century trying to understand the details of that mechanism. It represents the deep interconnectedness of all things on the earth. We are related to every form of life on this planet. We may have split off in lineages in the far past, but we are all related. There are, so far as we know, no aliens among us. And there are no aliens among us simply because they would look different. They would have come up through different evolution. They would have evolved in different ways. They would use different amino acids. They would use different sequences. They would not show the deep language. If you take apart human DNA, you will find words in there that are found in the most ancient bacteria on the planet. This is a powerful idea, and it's one that has caused tremendous controversy because Again, everyone wants to think at some level we are special. First we thought we were special because we were the center of the universe, and Copernicus showed this, so that was not true. Then we thought perhaps the sun was at the center of the galaxy, but we learned in the middle of the 20, beginning of the 20th century that was not true as well. We are about one star in one galaxy of many billions. And we are now coming to grips with the most difficult thing of all, we humans are not special, we are but one of many organisms that have come up onto this world through a very complex path of evolution. We are the products of three and a half billion years of natural selection. We've also begun to apply that knowledge to begin to put together the pieces of biology, of geology, of physics and astronomy, and we can reconstruct a complete history of the planet Earth. We know that we began in darkness, we began in the cold of space with no air, no water, in a very hot Hadean world. But within about a billion years, 
The volatiles in the atmosphere condensed out. Water began to fill the oceans. And we know from looking at isotope ratios and zircon crystals that are more than 3 billion years old, that as early as 3.8 billion years ago, the Earth had large-scale oceans of liquid water. Once those oceans of liquid water emerged, it was only within about 100 to 200 billion years that life began to emerge. There's simple life. It was a form of stromatolites, and it would stay simple marine or tidal pool life for another few billion years until the emergence of land life. We can see the echoes of this life today. We can identify living structures, living stromatolites here in Sharks Bay, Western Australia, Except for a few certain details, going to Sharks Bay, Western Australia, if you don't pay attention to some of the higher fish running around between your feet in the water, you are visiting the world of the late Archean, with one major exception. You're breathing oxygen. There was no oxygen in the atmosphere at the beginning of the Archean period. So this is actually a way of seeing a survival from that distant past. And we can find in the lineages of animals through that past in the geological record, we can trace the formation of the Earth's history. We can also see that the Earth has always been a somewhat indifferent home to us. There have been times in the past, maybe twice, maybe three or four times, according to some reckonings, where the entire planet is frozen over and the oceans are frozen a kilometer deep. And yet, as long as there was liquid water under the surface of the ocean, life managed to keep a foothold on this planet. Life survived at least two Snowball Earth episodes where the entire surface was frozen and inhospitable, and then managed through natural processes and physical processes that we've discussed in this class to have sprung backwards and once again become habitable. We can find in the fossil record single-celled organisms beginning to form and leave their traces behind as old as two and a half billion years that are recognizable as modern blue-green bacteria, so-called cyanobacteria. We can see the first appearance of multicellular life in the hunting formation a few billion years ago. And just before, a few hundred million years ago, basically a few six hundred million years ago, we begin to see the first complex fauna, the complex multicellular fauna called the Adiacara. Perhaps the Earth would only have gotten as far as Adiacara, but the oxygen levels in the planet rose in such a way that something happened, something changed about 545 million years ago on the Earth. And what changed we refer to as the Cambrian Explosion we see a sudden explosion in the fossil record of a tremendous amount of biodiversity. We see every kind of body type that we see on the Earth today, and many which never survived into the present day. We see creatures varied and multiple from plants to animals, again, all marine creatures. We see things also that carry within them structures familiar in our own cells. Down here in the fossilized creature Pachea, we see the first of the spinal cords. We do not coordinate. Perhaps it too will one day was maybe our ancestor, maybe related to our ancestor. We don't know our exact relationship to this. But this small handful of creatures basically may be at the basis of or related to all vertebrate forms of life on this planet. We can see those forms in their simplest ways at the beginning of the Cambrian explosion. Once life took off, once complex animal life took off in the Cambrian, when there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere to enable high energy metabolism of the sort needed to support large creatures, life simply exploded. Between 545 million years ago and 450 million years ago, life began to make its way up onto the surface of the Earth. As the oxygen content of the Earth rose to the point that there was enough ozone in the atmosphere to block the sun's harmful ultraviolet. As soon as the land was, was inhabitable, within a few tens of millions of years, it had been colonized first by plants and then by animal life. By the Carboniferous period, the Earth was covered in forests. 
There were insects, there were trees, there were ferns, there were, all of these were recognizable as the ancestors of current day life forms that we see in, in, in our Earth today. We still actually use the products of the Carboniferous period. Anytime you piece, use a piece of coal for a generation of electricity, you are using the leftover carbon from that literally carbon-bearing period, named for the geologic strata that contained coal. We also can see later periods which contain the fossilized carbon remnants which formed into petroleum and forms the basis of our economy in the form of oil. When you're using gas in your tank, you are using the remnants of ancient life upon this planet, the organization of carbon. Much later, land animals appeared, the dinosaurs, the largest of the creatures that have ever lived on this planet. They were the dominant form of life for more than almost 100 million years in many species and varieties. And yet, one day, their entire world came completely apart when a very large asteroid struck the Caribbean basin, forming a large underwater crater. And in the course of a few million years, a few thousand years, up to a few million years after the so-called Cretaceous tertiary event, impact event, Every dinosaur species was gone except for the distant ancestors of the birds. All other dinosaurs were left. And there were other survivors. And those survivors in between the niches were a small group of little fur balls, the mammals. The mammals radiated into every single one of the ecological niches that were vacated by the dinosaurs and began to cover the earth so that mammals are now the dominant large life form on this planet. Even the whales and the dolphins, the largest of the ocean-going species, are mammals. They've adapted to the water rather than to the land. So by the tertiary period, the forests regained their position. They were in different kinds of trees because they were the, the genetic ancestors, genetic descendants of their earlier uh, forebears. But now we see furry mammals of various kinds. And somewhere along the line in these various lineages, the prosimians emerged among those prosimians a few million years ago, the lineages of primates came off from which we ourselves spring. And so it was after the end of the Cretaceous tertiary boundary about 65 million years ago, life began to emerge until finally we began to see, admittedly, a somewhat uh, higher forms of life of various kind actually finally emerged upon this planet. Well, at least high altitude in this particular picture, and certainly capable again of applying their imaginations to what the world is like. We live on a world covered with life. It's one of the simple f defining features of the Earth. If you want to define it any way that makes it distinct from all the planets of the solar system, is we are the only known abode of life. When we sent our first spacecraft away from the Earth in the 1960s, in particular on the Apollo 8 mission, which was the first spacecraft bearing human beings that left the gravity of the Earth and traveled to the moon, circling the moon around Christmas time of 1968, so putting this back into perspective, that's approximately 41 years ago. And I remember this very clearly because I was seven years old at the time when this occurred. It was that picture taken from Apollo 8, looking from the moon back upon the Earth, that really galvanized the thought and imagination of people. The first thing you see about our planet is how lonely it looks in the darkness of space. This picture, too, again, fires the human imagination because that feeling of loneliness that we get when we think we're all there is begins to get people to thinking, well, maybe someone else is out there. And as you look at the darkness, you say, how could there be anyone in that darkness? But we didn't actually view this with despair. We actually began to change our way of looking at the world and looking at the worlds around us and saying, if life arose here, could it have arisen somewhere else within our solar system? We turned to our nearest neighbor, Mars, which didn't have an inhospitably hot atmosphere like Venus, and found, to our sadness, when the spacecraft went by, a dry desert world. 
But that still didn't stop us from thinking there should be some reason to go there, and we spent tremendous amount of effort and imagination to send our own robotic spacecraft to this planet, to dig into the surface, to look for the signs of water, until finally seeing the point where we can actually see the sublimation of water ice as exposed once we dig just a little ways down into the surface of the planet. More missions are planned to go back and begin to survey this nearest neighbor world to us and look for the signs of water life. We can see from space in the geology of Mars the evidence of vast water flows sometime in the distant past of Mars. If the present of Mars is dry and sere as a desert, in the past it may have been warm and wet and moist and a abode of life. Perhaps this is what Mars looked like the uh, first billion years of its history. Could Mars, just like when liquid water, when the Earth finally settled down, when the last sterilizing impacts on the Earth occurred, life emerged within 100 million years? Did life, too, also arise in the seas of Mars? But those seas were doomed. They ended up drying up over time and freezing out rather than staying warm and liquid as the seas of Earth have for the last three billion years. Perhaps the remnants of that life still remains on Mars, visible inside, deep and locked in the surface, perhaps as fossil forms of life. We don't know, but it is so fired our imagination that Mars may once have been a form of life that it will become the focus for much of the 21st century and probably beyond to look for signs that we weren't the only place where life began. But even more so, there have been surprises. For example, when we visited the worlds of, of the Galilean satellites discovered by Galileo 400 years ago with his tiny telescope, one of them has excited our imagination in a way almost no other solar system object has in recent years. The moon Europa may have beneath its ice caps a deep liquid ocean of liquid water, a liquid ocean that is two times larger than all the ocean waters of the Earth combined. Again, we only know that it maybe is liquid below the surface, but again, it has fired our imaginations in ways that we now ask, how can we measure? How can we confirm? Can we get below the ice? Can we send a robot through the ice? Can we search down to see if, in fact, the prerequisites of life have been recapitulated beneath the ice caps of Europa. We don't know, but this will be a place where I'm certain within the 21st century we will be exploring and hopefully exploring in detail because, again, our terrible loneliness as we see ourselves in the darkness of space, we want to find other life. It is in our human nature to find everything out there that we can. Even further, some beautiful pictures have come from around the planet Saturn of the tiny moon of Enceladus. And the fountains of Enceladus, one of the most spectacular pictures ever taken from the, planet, from the surroundings of the planet Saturn, showing us these fountains of liquid water welling up from deep beneath the surface of this tiny frozen moon. Even as recent as November, during the course of this, of this class, we saw new photographs taken only a few tens of kilometers as the spacecraft skimmed over the surface of this planet, showing these jets coming of water, coming up through the cracks of the ice in here, trying to reveal to us, maybe telling to us, that like Europa, there is a subsurface liquid ocean on Enceladus. It's got some heat, it's got organics, it's got liquid water. It's all the prerequisites we think we need for life. Could there also be life on Enceladus? It is clear that Enceladus will be one of those other places that is now firing our imagination, that is giving us a place to look, to explore, and seek out for new life. Even Titan, the large moon of, of Saturn, has shown itself to be surprises. Maybe not a, an abode of life, but maybe a glimpse at the prebiotic Earth, if a very, very cold version thereof. 
But we now know that methane, beneath its smog-covered clouds, actually contains seas of liquid methane. It is rich in organic materials. It has got a weather cycle mediated by methane rather than water. But we can see recapitulated on this tiny world around Saturn, many of the processes we think may have been at work if in a warmer environment along the prebiotic pre-life Earth. And so Titan II will be a point of focus for study because it's a possibility to see a living world. Not a world necessarily of life, but with all we think of the chemical and energetic precursors of life. And so it becomes as interesting as any place else and probably holds itself surprises for us. But beyond our own solar system, we begin to look outwards to the same stars we saw for the first time thousands of years ago and they're reported in our constellations on, on cave paintings and tomb walls. We look out to those stars and we begin to see them as they are, as other suns like our own, different and varied in their temperatures and sizes. And we begin to ask, do they too hold planets? Do they too hold life? Ten years ago, we barely knew the answer to that. We only knew of one solar system, our own. But today, we know of more than 400 planets, around 350 stars. They are literally doubling every two years in our knowledge. Our knowledge is growing at an exponential rate in terms of how many star planets have Stars have planets around them. This is one of the first pictures of a planetary system seen from afar. We're only at the point where we're looking at gas giants. And we're looking at these gas giants in very strange places. They're very close to their parent stars. They're much closer than Mercury is to our own sun. So we've found a series of very strange new worlds, but we have not yet found a world like our own. But the search continues. And we don't know when it's going to happen, but I believe sometime in the coming decade of the 2010s to 20-teens, that we are going to find the first definitive signs of an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of its star in nearby space, meaning out to about 100 light years. That will galvanize studies to learn more about that world and see, does it have an atmosphere? Does it have water? Does it have life upon it? We already know what questions we're going to ask, but there are going to be many other questions. We can imagine what such worlds would be like. We can imagine ways to measure them to say, do they have oxygen? Do they have water? Do they have an atmosphere? In fact, do they even have life, plant life, or maybe even animal life upon them? We're starting to learn. We haven't got anything to look at yet, but we think we know how we do it. Think how much the human imagination would be fired by the discovery of another Earth around a nearby star and another Earth that harbored signs spectroscopically of life. It would galvanize humanity in ways that would probably have never been matched throughout its entire history. But there are other ways that we can look. We can imagine other worlds, and we have imagined other worlds. We've peopled them with aliens, even though we have no knowledge of life elsewhere. Our imaginations have already begun to people the galaxy. And peopling them in such a way that we think that they're going to be somewhat like us. They're going to somehow evolve like us. And they're going to develop the curiosity and technologies like we do. And so while some people are actively looking for specific planets, other places are simply taking the long, patient road of simply listening to the sky, listening to the emptiness of space, and waiting to hear a signal from somebody else out there, an artificial radio signal, radio chatter, or even a directed message saying, hello. We've gone even further than that and done one of the, perhaps what I would think is probably one of the most human things we can possibly do, and that's stand up and say we're here. On the Pioneer 10 spacecraft, which is currently leaving the solar system, there is a plaque on the side that shows the origin of, this, of that probe, the path that it took out of our solar system, some information about its location in the galaxy, and a picture of the people who sent it. 
On the Voyager spacecraft, both of which are heading out of our solar system now, there is a gold record which contains sounds and pictures of our planet, sounds of the people of the Earth, of every people on the planet that is sent out with instructions on how to play it. They're simply sent blind. There's no target on these things. They're simply being sent out to say, we're here. Whether anyone will ever find them, we don't know. But they are of a piece of something very deep and human within us, the same thing that led whoever this anonymous person was 20 or 30,000 years ago to put their handprint upon a wall inside of a cave inside of France and says, I'm here, this is me, I am human, and these are my works. We don't know what it's going to be like if we find that Earth. Are we going to go there? Probably we'll be galvanized to go there. It will take the resources of all of humanity to accomplish it. We don't know if we're going to ride there on immense nuclear blasts behind us and use the power of the atom to push us across the distances of stars or whether we are going to unfurl a vast sail and simply sail through infinite space using a simple breeze of light. But in any way, if we ever find an Earth with life within anywhere within 10 or 20 light years, I almost guarantee you if we haven't destroyed ourselves, we will find some way to go there. In fact, maybe the thought there is somewhere else for us to go may prevent us from doing that very thing from destroying ourselves before we can find someone else. Because we always seem to be most curious who's over the next hill and what are they like. If there's no one there, maybe it's somewhere else for us to go and give humanity a second chance on a different world. But we don't have to stop just simply with a single star or the single groups of stars. We live in an immense galaxy filled with hundreds of billions of stars. Those galaxies, too, we could, if we had the will and the technology and the time, within 10 or 100 million years, Sufficiently advanced intelligence could colonize an entire galaxy full of 100 billion stars. Perhaps in our distant future, it is maybe our future or that of someone else to colonize the stars. Or maybe not. Maybe it's never happened. We don't know. The so-called Fermi paradox, again, a product of our imaginings of what the world may be like, asks the question, where is everybody? Are they out there and simply listening to us, or are they not there at all? We simply have no knowledge. But our imagining is pushing us forward to asking these questions and seeking out the answers to these things. As we look into the depths of space, we see galaxies as common as grains of sand upon the Earth. There are approximately 10 to the 22 stars within the visible horizon of the universe. That's 20 billion trillion stars. Any one of them, a tiny one of them, could also harbor life that are looking back upon us and looking back upon the world. As we go into the depths of space, as we look out further into the immensity of space, we are always still turning our eyes backwards, down onto ourselves. In 1990, the Voyager spacecraft, well on its way out of the solar system, turned its cameras back, not upon where it was going, but where it came from, and took a portrait of the entire inner solar system, including this one tiny little place called the Earth, seen from a distance of 6.4 billion years, billion kilometers away. Carl Sagan, who did much to popularize astronomy early in the, in the uh, certainly in the 1970s and 1980s, referred to this as the pale blue dot. It was that deep, distant vision of what the Earth looks like from space. In the blackness of space, there is that tiny, very tiny harbor of life. A more recent picture taken from the Cassini spacecraft in the last year, looking back on the giant planet Saturn, using Saturn to block the light of the, of the sun, can see just between the rings this tiny blue dot that is in fact our home. That's everything that we know. All of human history, every animal, every plant, every creature that has ever lived on this planet, all of the wars and artworks and music and everything that human beings have created are on that tiny collection of pixels hanging in the darkness of space. 
If we look outwards in the universe, if we seek out life on other worlds, if we seek out the questions, we're really ultimately turning those questions back upon ourselves. And so if I started with a quote from a physicist of the 20th century, it seems appropriate to begin to close it out by looking back upon ourselves and why is it that we as human beings explore. I come back to T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets from the poem Little Gidding. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. We seek to know the world because we seek to know ourselves, ultimately. But the final word I want to give to this class, this is a class about life, life in its varieties, life in its understanding, life in its possibilities to live throughout the universe. We want to ask, well, what is our view of life? What is, what is it we have learned? And I want to give the last word to the man of this year, Charles Darwin. In the closing sections of his 1859 book on the origin of species from the first edition, he made the following statement. There is a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed laws of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. We tend to view life as we see it around ourselves today. We are a product of a long history of life, and we hope that history of life will continue on into the future. The whole goal of science is to know the world and ultimately to know ourselves. The goal of astrobiology is to take together all the things we know about astronomy, physics, chemistry, geology, biology, put them all together and ask a question, a question for which we have no knowledge. Are we alone in the universe? but which we can imagine that not only is there an answer, but an answer that we can find and understand. And that, in a sense, is what this class has been all about. Thank you.